Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Morning. Everybody doing good? You know, I absolutely love the book of Romans. And as we are getting a a handle on our theology uh, throughout the summer, we all need to know that that everyone ultimately is a theologian. Because when it gets down to it, the very base definition of a theologian or theology is just what do you believe to be true about God? Now, within that, it is important to actually be plugged into the truth, which is what we find in the Word of God. So, as we are trying to, to figure out exactly what God is communicating to us, what we should believe. I think it's very important when it comes to theology that we take a hand-squished approach. Now, what does it mean to take a hand-squished approach? I am so glad that you asked me. You know, my grandmother used to make the most amazing homemade buttermilk biscuits. She would make, I know, come on now. She would make a whole, she would make a whole pan of those things at the beginning of the week because my pawpaw would eat somewhere between like three and eight of those hummers a day. So she always had to have biscuits. Now never forget what I could always tell it was biscuit day when I went to grandmother's because there would be flour just all over the counter and inherently it would just be a mess while she was making the biscuits. It would take as much time to, to clean up after making the biscuits as it would, would for the biscuits to actually bake themselves. And you know, when you're making biscuits, it's a messy process. You know, the ingredients are simple. They're really not hard to make, but to get them right, you've got to get your hands down into the dough and knead it all around and turn it out and fold it and mash it down and by by the end of it all like you've got dough all over your fingers and it's a sticky mess but you know that's exactly how we should approach the word of god and when we get our hands down deep in god's word and are working out these truths for ourselves we will realize that it's not us that really have a handle on what's going on. It's actually God, the master potter whose hands are molding our heart to shape us into vessels that he can use for, in his service for his glory. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to take a hand-squished approach to Romans chapter 9 and 10. Get your Bibles ready. We'll begin in verse 9. We are going to... Uh, we are going to dive in to these two chapters and see what the Word of God is telling us. So the overarching theme of Romans 9 and 10 is that salvation comes through faith, or salvation comes through faith in Christ alone and not through works. And this is something that Israel is having difficulty with. They have actually drifted into a reliance upon works and ethnic ancestral rights by way of Abraham to assure their salvation. And it is, 
It is in this place that Paul opens up in Romans chapter 9 and, and expresses his strong feelings about where his, fe his fellow Israelites are at. We'll read verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Let's take a moment and think about that. Paul is saying that if it would help, he would take his salvation and his place in heaven, cast it aside, and he would gladly spend eternity in hell with the devil if it would mean that his countrymen would accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Now this is not the way that salvation works. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient and, in, and efficient for us to be completely and totally saved. So we don't have to do that. But this illustrates what is in Paul's heart. When it comes to his countrymen. And when I read this, I was cut to the quick because I began to think about it for myself. What is my attitude towards lost people? What is my heart towards those people that God has placed around me that don't know Him? And would, would I be prepared to be like Paul? Would I say I would not go to heaven if indeed they would accept Christ? At the very least, it, Paul's heart for his lost countrymen reminds us that we should constantly keep those who need Christ on the forefront of our minds. We should check ourselves often. Is my heart grieved for the people in my family who do not know Christ? Do I anguish? For the souls of my unbelieving friends. Because we too once walked according to the course of this world. Until the power of God's grace made us alive in Christ. And it is, it is in this statement of grief that it seems like Paul is really asking a question. Why? Why don't they believe in Christ? Because in Paul's mind... He thinks back and he sees the Old Testament. He can see Christ being revealed from the very beginning. So with that, let's read verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. So let's take a look and see who Paul is right now. Paul was an educated man, graduated from the highest rabbinical schools. He was a Pharisee. He was a lawyer. He had memorized the first five books of the Bible. He sat at the feet of one of the most astute and renowned teachers in the ancient world, Gamaliel. This guy knew the Old Testament Back and forth. And it is through that lens that, that Paul interprets his experience with Christ. 
And see, because we know that, that Paul, you know, he, 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 he wasn't where he was when he was writing Romans, you know, all, all the time. At one time, he was a killer of Christians, you know, so he understands what's going on in their minds. But as a person who has experienced the grace of Christ for himself, he, he looks back and he says, oh my goodness, I can see, I can see from Adam to Jesus, from Genesis to Malachi, how this whole book is talking about Jesus Christ. I can see how God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis talks about salvation. I can see how the law of Moses is working to regenerate people's hearts, not just to give them a stepladder uh, by which if they climb, they'll be able to attain holiness. Everything in the Bible from Adam to Malachi is about Jesus. It's about his life, his ministry, his death, his burial. And with such a rich heritage... How could they miss Jesus? Well, I would submit to you that it is, in fact, because of their rich heritage of faith that they missed Jesus. Because they thought that they could get in on their mama's and their daddy's coattails. They thought that just because they were of the ethnic lineage of Abraham that they were assured salvation. We'll see this throughout everything that we're talking about this morning. They had somehow forgotten that faith indeed is not inherited. Faith is something that is developed individually between you and God. But, but wait a second. Let's, let's not be too tough on the Jews here, you know, because when, when we take a look at it, we could see how they could interpret the prophecies and the scriptures to, to say or to communicate that they are beneficiaries through this physical lineage. You know, in Genesis 15 and 17, God tells Abraham, look towards heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Then God also says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. The covenant will be between you and your offspring and God. The land of Canaan will be an everlasting possession for them. Isaac was the son of God's promise to Abraham. Then the promise was confirmed through Isaac to his son Jacob, who was later named Israel, who then had 12 sons from whom the entire nation of Israel sprang. So, and then in, in a way, we can really kind of plug into that thought process and see how they can think that. But I would submit that the prophecies and the covenants were simply misunderstood. And this is not just my thinking. In verses 6 through 8, we'll really see that this is the Pauline thinking as well. So let's, let's read and see what Paul has to say about these covenants and these promises. 
in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, Israel on the whole, somewhere along the way, had forgotten that their entire faith system was based and began when a pagan man from a pagan nation heard the voice of God and he dared to believe him. And because God and because Abraham believed God, God declared Abraham righteous. The Jews believed that they were uh, the Jews believed that because they were descended from Abraham that they were heir to this promise. So exactly when did the Jews kind of start think, thinking this? Well, we know at the very least they've been thinking this for the past 30 years. Because we can go back to Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 through 10 and see John the Baptist. All right, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the religious people of the day, they're coming in to see John the Baptist preach and baptize, and John the Baptist gets irate. He is mad. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And according to Paul, not much has changed in the past 30 years between John the Baptist and the writing of this letter. Because Paul communicates to us that it is the children of the promise and not the children of the flesh that will be counted as children of God. So then, that begs the following questions. What exactly is the promise? Who are these children of the promise? Paul explains that to us beginning in verses 9 going down to 13. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So here's the promise. Sarah and Rebekah, the wives of Abraham and Isaac, both had one thing in common. They were both barren. They couldn't have children. So that means, think about this, the very place where God intended life to be birthed, the very place where God intended humanity to be nurtured and birthed, from was broken. 
it worked for, it worked at, it worked in other people. It just, it, it didn't work in them for some reason. But God said, Abraham, I'm going to reach down into the places that are broken. I'm going to reach down into the places where death reigns. I'm going to reach down into the place where life should be. And I am going to cause life to come out of death. Now, we know that, that if, if the promise was truly from Abraham's seed, according to the flesh, then Ishmael would also be bearers of the promise. But that's not what God said. God didn't say through Hagar, your seed will be blessed. He said through Sarah, your seed will be blessed. And you will have a son. In other words, I will cause you to have a son where you can't see where a son would be. He did the same thing for Isaac, except Isaac got twins. So this to me looks a whole lot like the process of salvation. Because see, because, because of sin being in the world, we are broken. Humanity does not work. Just like the wounds of Sarah and Rebecca did not work. They needed a supernatural jump. They needed God to come in and heal what was broken. They needed God to come in and rework whatever God needed to work in order to bring life out of the place that God had intended life to come out of in the first place. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead. That we were dead. Dead in our sins and trespasses. But He made us to become alive. In Christ Jesus. This is what it says. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. He has raised us up with Him. And He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come we might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. As the promise of God meant restored life to the wombs of Sarah and Rebekah, so does the promise of God bring life to those that are dead in trespasses and sins. And if that's you, if you were once dead in your trespasses, if God reached down into the muck of your life, grabbed you by the nap of the neck and pulled you up and said, I've got, I'm bringing you to life. I've sent my son Jesus to die on the cross for you. And you don't have to sit down there in that muck and in that junk. Come on in to life eternal. If that's you, then you are a child of the promise. 
not just and the promise goes back to not only in the in the New Testament but it goes all the way back to Abraham you are a child of the promise if he has brought you from life from, from death into life and here's the good news that's for everybody if you're in here this morning and you're dead in whatever it is know that God in his grace and his mercy and his love wants to bring you to life in Christ Jesus this morning. Amen. Just as Abraham believed God, and God accounted him righteous because of his belief, so does faith in Jesus Christ make us children of the promise, meaning that we have been adopted as children of God. Amen. Now, before I go any further... I want to directly address verse 13. It says that Paul writes, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. How can I reconcile that with a loving and a merciful God who brings us from death to life? Well, we just have to look in our Bible. Note that, that Paul here is quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This does not occur in the Genesis account. As a matter of fact, when we go back to Genesis chapter 25, the Lord tells Rebekah that two nations are in your womb. Two people from within, from within shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Esau becomes a mighty nation. And in Genesis chapter 3, Esau is actually quite wealthy when Jacob reunites with him. Esau is the father of the nation of Edom. How many of you have ever seen Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade? Seen that movie? Okay, you know like that big stone temple that they go in and like the, only the penitent man will pass and all that stuff? Well, that big rock face is called Petra that was built by the descendants of Esau okay so what now 1500 years later in Malachi he uses this word hated to describe the relationship between Israel and Edom but scholars tell us that this is an idiom and hated here really expresses less preferred. We should actually interpret this descriptive language as a quarrel between siblings. Like when my daughters, da daughters say, I hate you, you stole my Shopkin or something like that. You know, they don't really, they hate them in that moment, but they don't hate them. You know what I mean? So the point when it comes to verse 13, I just want to clear the confusion, is that we need to focus on the unmerited, overwhelming love of God towards Jacob. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a preacher in Great Britain in the 1800s, once preached a sermon on Romans 9.13. And when he finished, a woman came up and said, I just can't understand why he hated Esau. To that, Spurgeon replied, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how he could love Jacob. Dr. David Jeremiah tells us the greatest miracle is that God chooses to love any of his fallen creatures, not that he prefers to bless some more than others.
So after reading that segment of scripture, Paul, ever the master orator, anticipates the following response from his brethren. Well, that's not fair. Oh, but Paul, I love Paul. He preemptively responds to that rebuttal and says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There is no injustice with God. God is both just and justifier. So that just means that we will either be recipients of God's justice, i.e. we will collect the wages of sin, which is eternal death in hell, or we will be declared justified through faith in Christ, which means that God has pardoned you from your sins and in relation to the law, God has declared you righteous. Christ, think about it, Christ is a stone. And imagine, imagine a portrait of your life painted large upon a wall and there's a, a, a path that's winding off throughout the portrait and that represents your path in life. Well, at some point in time, you will encounter a stone in your path and that stone will be Jesus Christ. You'll do one of two things. You will either stumble over that stone and fall flat on your face against your will or you will recognize him as the chief cornerstone, the firm foundation upon which God the Father beckons us to build our lives. Paul summarizes Romans chapter 9 in verses 30 through 33. And he writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul's indictment of Israel is crystal clear. They thought they could obtain righteousness merely by following the letter of the law. They thought that they could obtain righteousness and salvation by what they did. But it wasn't good enough. Because being right with God is not an issue of accomplishment or an issue of following the letter of the law. It is a matter of faith, which means that it's a matter of the heart. Therefore, and salvation is a, and a relationship with God is available to anyone who answers God's call and has faith in him. Remember, I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. He tells us that if a man looks, even looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery with her. Further illustrating 
that God gave us the law not as some like, set of stairs that we could walk up by which that we could attain holiness, by which we could obtain perfection, but he gave it to us as a guide for our hearts. In summary of chapter 9, we have learned that we should develop a heart for the lost. We should understand that our faith journey is personal and God wants us to discover him on our own. The children of God's promise to Abraham are begat by faith in God and not by physical inheritance. God is just and he is justifier. God's promise is also available to all who believe. As we, as we move into chapter 10, Paul will, Paul will further summarize chapter 9 in the first four verses of chapter 10. And I just I, I think it's hilarious because we have the ultimate Pauline compliment sandwich. What's going on here? So I'm going to read it in chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Well, that's convenient, being that he's just whipped all the, the Israelites for, for having a works-based faith. Choose Jesus. You know, he starts off telling the Israelites, I want, I, I, I want them all to be saved. I'll go to hell if it means that they will choose Christ. And then he just lets them have it in chapter 9. And then he comes back, he's like, oh. But I love you. And I want you to be saved. And then, and then, Paul turns into a salesman. And he assumes the sale. I love it. He assumes that what he has said will be effective. And it is effective. For you and for me and anyone who reads and believes. For he gives, the, he, he gives implicit instructions on what one must do to become saved. So we skip down to verses 9 through 13. And to be absent, he, he doesn't leave any rock unturned. He wants to make sure that his brethren know what they need to do to have salvation. He writes in verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love how Paul switches from from directly addressing the Jews here to addressing everyone, letting us all know that the plan of salvation is not just for, for the Jews. Remember, because the children of promise are those who take God at his word and have faith in him that he will bring dead people to life out of the bondages of sin and death and raise them to life in Christ if they'll just have faith in the name of Jesus. So, and Paul goes on to say, he, he, he tells us further that it is a condition of the heart. With the heart, one believes and is justified. Remember, justified 
Meaning again that God has pardoned you from your sins in relation to the law. And you have satisfied all of his commands because the moral law of God remains intact. If it did not, that would mean God would be unjust. And we know that God is not just. He is just. And what? Justifier? Man, y'all are listening. I love it. Faith is born of belief in the heart. And out of the heart, confession is made. Good works are done. But where does this faith come from? This is the last section of scripture I'll read. How is faith actually birthed in the heart that is dead in trespasses and sins? Verse 14 through 17 says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The responsibility of all who have been saved by the grace of God is to preach the gospel in word and in deed. And when the, because the word of God is powerful to go into a dead heart of stone that is existing in the place of death and quicken it to life, making it able to be receptive to the drawing of the Holy Spirit Therein, making the person whom faith is coming alive, making them open to the idea and the gospel that Jesus came to save them from their sins, that there's nothing that they can do to earn salvation, that all that they must do is put their faith and hope and trust in Him, and they will be saved. And it's up to us to tell that truth. In conclusion, we can... We can summarize Romans 9 and 10 in two very clear and concise points. The first is, come to Christ. If you are weary and heavy laden by the burdens of life, come and lay them at the foot of the cross and take upon yourself the easy yoke of salvation. Come to Christ. Are you mourning and downcast in your soul? Come and trade in the spirit of heaviness for the garment of praise and you will be able to lift your head with a voice of triumph and say, thanks be to God because he has given me the victory through Christ Jesus. Come to Christ because he lives. He can restore the waste places of your lives. He can repair the streets for you to dwell in again because friends, you cannot do it on your own. Dear friends, come to Christ today. Put your faith and trust in Him and He will set your feet on the eternal rock from whence you shall not be moved. Though tempest and trial and tribulation may still come your way, you will find yourself firmly planted on the rock of Christ and there you will stay. The last thing is to preach the gospel. To those who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of your lives and are beneficiaries of the promises God gave to Abraham, whom God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light, 
I charge you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost to preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. And when the time comes to use words, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have inside of you. And when the door opens and you go out into the world, expect that God is going to cause people that don't know him to cross your path. And that before you say a word, the life that you live for Christ will precede you. Let us all seek to be people filled with grace and humility. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And like Jacob, God's love for us is not based on our merit or anything else that we will do. But it is based on the fact that God himself is love. Begin to think about these lost people intentionally. As Paul did begin to anguish for their souls. I'm not asking you to manufacture a false feeling, but I believe that as we begin to think about God's lost sheep, our hearts will align with His. Then lastly, be prepared. I pray that you begin to scour the Scriptures, to mine the truths in God's Word. And when the moment comes and you're having the conversation with those who are in search of God and they ask what is truth you'll be able to say come with me and I can show you with every head bowed and every eye closed I'm going to pray for two simple things this morning if you don't know Jesus as your personal savior I implore you to come to Christ this morning. If that's you and you're out there and you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, do that today. Why don't you go ahead and lift your hand and make that decision to go from death to life. For He is calling you. He is drawing you by the power of His Spirit right now. And for those of you who have, who have answered the call, you have Jesus in your heart. I want to pray that you will be empowered to witness to others the good news, the change that has occurred in your life and that people's lives will be changed. If you want, you want your life to be a powerful witness for Christ, would you go ahead and lift your hand? hands up all over the room. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, we're going to pray the prayer of salvation. Lord, even though no one raised their hand, there might be someone sitting in their chair or listening. Lord, everyone, everyone repeat after me. Say, Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know that I can't be perfect. I know that I can't make it to heaven on my own. There's nothing that I can do. I put my faith and my trust in you. Come into my heart. Be Lord and Savior of my life. Amen. Now I want to pray to empower you for service unto God, that your life would be a light and a witness. Dear Heavenly Father God, I pray for all of those here, Lord, that want their life to be a light and a witness for you. 
God, I pray that the anointing of your Holy Spirit would just go out, Lord, and that people's lives would be seasoned with salt. Lord, I pray that as they go into the dark world, Lord, the light of the gospel would shine forth from them and that they would make an impact, Father. Lord, that they would be influencers for you in their community, in their families. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost. Lord, just like Paul, just break us for the people that are connected and around us that need you most, Father. And God, let us not cease to be active witnesses for you. Help us to endure. God, help us to be effective in the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.